Hello everybody, it's a Jelly Bean from the Don't Forget the Bubbles conference in Melbourne. This is an amazing bunch of people who have been five years old, who have been putting out, really pushing forward paediatrics, new things around paediatrics for everybody in medicine, but particularly with the emergency medicine and paediatric crossover, which of course is no longer just a paediatric problem. So there are so many things in paediatrics that we all need to know a little bit about, even if it's not our area of expertise. And I have an amazing person to talk to today who is basically, I don't know how, you know, the amount of stuff you know about that I'd love to know about. It's Margie Danchin. Hello, Margie. Hello, thanks for having me. Margie's from the Royal Children's Hospital. That's right. And now, let's just go straight to it. What is your primary area of research interest? Well, I've had a long history in vaccine-related research, vaccine clinical trials and vaccine safety, but over the last four to five years, I've really focused all of my research on vaccine hesitancy, why parents think the way they do, what are their concerns, and potentially now some strategies or interventions that we can do to improve vaccine uptake and vaccine confidence. Um, and then I guess the impact um, on policy is the, the ultimate aim as well. It's such an interesting area of like a true public health crossover and, and, and probably one of the most politicised little moments in normal sort of general practice and paediatric pediatrics practice in the rooms, people coming in and talking to you about vaccines and all of the hullabaloo that's been going on. That's right. It's not new, of course, no, but particularly no. since the initial MMR Wakefield study and all of that controversy. Absolutely. What is actually happening in Australia? What's actually happening with vaccine uptake and hesitancy? What are the numbers like? I mean, are we really falling off an edge here? Are there really huge drops in vaccine uptake? Well, that's actually a very good question. When you look at the average rates at the three time points that we measure, which is the one-year-old, two-year-old, sort of five-year-old time points, if you look at it nationally, we're actually doing pretty well. The coverage rates sit around 92, 93%. But of course, there are huge areas, um, regional areas where the coverage is much lower. And you know, even in inner city Melbourne here, the coverage rate for that one year old time point, for example, is around 83, 84%, which is quite shocking. Mm. And then of course we have other areas around Australia, particularly like the Northern Rivers region in Northern New South Wales, where the rates are really through the boot, you know, through people's boots, it's sort of in the 50, 60% coverage rate. Right. Uh, but those coverage areas particularly exist, the low coverage areas in all of the capital cities, particularly Melbourne and Sydney. So it is actually quite concerning. Right, and so, so it's quite a quite complex mosaic, isn't it? I mean, it's not just a case of like everybody who lives in Mullen maybe doesn't have vaccine no. and everybody else is okay. Tell me about the, the sort of groups, because like, it, it's, it's all very fine to dismiss, and I do hear people being dismissive of anti-vaccination people, um, and it's, you know, they're all hippies, or they're all yeah, this, and they're all that, right. but that's not the truth, is it? No, well, in fact, um, vaccine coverage is uh, lower at both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. So we see um, uh, poorer families, or lower SES families, if you like, who potentially may have lower uh, coverage rates, but that's actually much more related to what we call access or practical barriers. So these mm. are families, potentially larger families, more disadvantaged families who struggle to get their children vaccinated, but there is some hesitancy there. Hmm. But we actually see a large proportion of parents at the other end of the socio-economic spectrum, the wealthier parents, the well-educated parents that are also highly vaccine hesitant and are, are delaying or selecting out of what we call cherry-picking vaccines, right. and there are refusers at the other end as well. But in terms of thinking about parents, um, I like to think about them on a spectrum of, of vaccine hesitancy, and this is very much a framework that was first described by Julie Leask, who's a researcher at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. 
And that really describes parents in sort of five categories, if you like, from the vaccine acceptor all the way out to the refuser. So you have the vaccine acceptor, the parent with minor concerns, the highly hesitant, uh, sorry, the cautious acceptor, the highly hesitant, the delay selective vaccinator and the refuser. So I think understanding that parents sit somewhere along that continuum is really important when we think about tailoring communication with parents. And so the inner city group are the, the, the professionals and the people that are researching for themselves and the, the sort of yep. upper middle class, middle class sort of type people, well educated. Is that yes, right? Yes, okay. we, we do see that definitely. Well educated, wealthier parents represented. You, you're working in um, Melbourne in, in the Royal Children's Hospital and so on. Um, so you'll be dealing with that sort of group. But, but I presume being the main referral centre for quite a few things, you get to see both sides of the coin. Do you have different strategies for the different groups? I do, I do. I, I work in a weekly immunisation clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, and I have done for the last 10 years and we get parents referred into this clinic about a quarter of the families we see are vaccine hesitant the rest are children who either need special risk vaccines or who have had an adverse event to a vaccine right. but I should highlight up front as I talk about some of the strategies that we use that we are fortunate in this clinic to see parents for up to an hour mm. and we fully recognise that in the general practice setting for example a GP may only have 10 to 15 minutes with a family and they may only GP may only find out at the end of the consultation that the parent is refusing vaccines or in the ED setting it when it comes up or in outpatients. So just being you know, fairly clear that some of the strategies and things that I'll talk through, we do have a longer period of time with these families. Right, okay. And so the well, one in four are being hesitant or are they have to be talked into having vaccines or is it a case that they're actually coming to you looking for permission not to have vaccines? Well, we sort of have, have the whole spectrum. We do have some families who have either had an adverse event to a vaccine in the child or a sibling that don't want to vaccinate anymore, which is a slightly different conversation. We have some families coming in, as I said, cherry picking or only giving some vaccines or completely refusing. A common reason for these families to present to our clinic now is because they're seeking a medical exemption. Because since the introduction of the no jab policies, so that's no jab, no pay, which provides access to certain family assistance payments or no jab, no play, which is actually only now been introduced in three states in Australia, which uh, restricts access to early childcare services, so kindergarten and childcare for unvaccinated children. We now have parents coming in that these policies were introduced um, in January 2016, so it's a couple of years now they are seeking a medical exemption, but we know that the actual criteria to get a med medical exemption is quite strict. Mm -hmm. You basically have to have had an anaphylactic reaction. Yourself, not your sibling. The, the child has to have had an anaphylactic yeah. reaction to a vaccine. Yeah. It's not accepted from anaphylaxis in a family member okay. or a sibling. Or the child has immunocompromise either from uh, an illness or from taking immunosuppressant medications for whatever reason. Right. And that's pretty much it. Beyond that, um, we can grant um, a temporary medical exemption for acute severe medical illness and obviously that's a bit grey. but. Needless to say, it's, it's quite strict. And so we actually have these families coming into clinic, getting very upset, very irate. I've had parents yelling at me, crying, slamming the door, when we say, look, I'm sorry, I can't give you a medical exemption. Well, which is a bit of a challenge, because I mean, they, they didn't really come to see the doctor, they really came with one thing in mind. They wanted one Some thing from Some of them do, yeah. Now, the, for, there's a lot of people listening who aren't actually working in Australia, and they might be in New Zealand or the UK, or whatever else. 
this is a politically charged issue here yeah, in Australia, so. and it's a it's a relatively right wing government that have pushed this through, who have the classic right wing kind of bad attitude to anybody on welfare and their spongers and all of this sort of language, and they use this kind of language. So it's controversial. This was brought in. It was Tony Abbott who was in charge when they thought it up, but it was Turnbull who was in charge when they started it. Right. That's right. So these are two. Actually, the whole world probably just heard about this because these guys <laughs> managed to make such, such a fuss about them, the, the, their, their infighting. But it must be difficult that essentially they're forcing you to be the policeman of this, aren't they? That's right. I don't know how the people in your clinic feel about that, or is it, or is it the case that the folks in the clinic feel so confident in the benefit of vaccines that they think that, that there really is anything that can encourage these people to take vaccines is okay, or is there a bit of a, a debate within Yeah, well, it wouldn't surprise you to hear that there's a spectrum of opinion in our clinic. Um, I'll be upfront and honest and say that I don't support these policies. Mm. I think that um, these vaccine mandates and these highly punitive policies are not necessarily in these families' best interests. I think it disengages them from healthcare. And there are a lot of unintended negative consequences that go along with these policies. And I think there are better ways without using a big stick um, to encourage parents to vaccinate. One of the most common questions I'm asked is, well, what impact have these policies had mm. so far in the last two years? And there's no doubt that what we've seen is that the policies have caused a slight increase in vaccine coverage rates, maybe 0.8 to 1%. Um, and that's mainly related to nudging people to catch up. So if they've been complacent or late in getting their children vaccinated for whatever reason, again, this is getting back to those two determinants of under-vaccination that I talked about, the access or practical barriers versus the vaccine hesitancy or the acceptance issues. So what we see is that the policies are triggering those parents to, who have more practical or access issues to overcome those barriers. Mm. But from the research that we've done in our clinic, maybe only about 20% of the vaccine hesitant parents are nudged by the policies to start vaccinating. And that's not necessarily completely vaccinating. That might be to accept one or two vaccines. The parents who are already selectively vaccinating or the refusers uh, I'd say they're having almost no impact at all. And one assumes that that was the target that they were really looking at. Well, that's right. And when these politicians come out and talk about these policies, they very much frame them to the general public that we are targeting those dreadful anti-vaxxers. You know, there's mm. always this negative connotation and this kind of blame around the anti-vaxxers. But in fact, those policies are not targeting those people. They're potentially causing more harm to them, to their families in terms of financial disadvantage, um, uh, restricting access to early childhood education. And there's a whole lot of other unintended consequences that I think we need to carefully consider. So when we're looking at the, obviously there's different cells of populations around the country where there's lower rates of vaccine. We've talked about Mullumbimby, but I mean, there's, there's always a South Wales and a San Diego and every, Absolutely. you know, there's lots of places around every country in the world has little groups like this. And, uh, and as you pointed out, more diverse than the concept of, uh, you know, we're not just talking about hippies, we're talking about all sorts of other things as well. But what are people doing in other parts of the world? I mean, like we, they've gone with a big stick approach. Are there other types of encouragements that have been working that are yeah. work better I mean, around the planet? That's an excellent question. Uh, so, for example, California and the United States have introduced legislation um, that is similar to what we've introduced here um, with basically abolition of all non-medical exemptions so only medical um, criteria will get okay. you exempted 
if you go to Europe, there are some countries that have actually introduced fines. If children are not vaccinated, the parents are actually fined. Um, the situation in Italy is actually really interesting because they had a populist government coming in March this year and repeal a law that was only brought in last year where children were mandated to have 10 vaccines. The populist government has come in this year in Italy and abolished that and said that actually now parents just have to um, write a letter and that those kids will be accepted into to, to school and they don't no longer need to have an immunisation certificate, which is a real problem. So I think that there are different examples around the world and there's definitely a continuum or spectrum of the severity of the vaccine mandates that have been brought in. And so one of the big fears, I mean, if, you get, if the people that are coming in, I mean, you're obviously, you're less likely to get a total refuser unless they, for some reason, have got to you to try and get a medical exemption. But I'm assuming they're going to the general practitioners, they're going to everybody for medical exemptions. Yes, So first, usually firstly the GP. Yeah, and so they, 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 when you're trying to explain to these people, you know, the good things about vaccines, right? Well, no, let, let's take it back a little. So the ones that you work with, the ones that you're actually going, you, you're going to approach and you're going to put the effort into changing, you've subdivided them, haven't you? I mean, there's some people that you go like, I'm going to put a lot of work into this person because That's they right. might move. That person there needs to move to, needs to be in a different place before they're going to accept any vaccines for their child. That's so, right. So how do you pick those two apart? What are, what are those sort of, when, when you meet them first, well, how do you yeah. go through that process? So coming back to that vaccine communication framework I mentioned earlier that Julie Leask um, formulated with the five categories of parents. So the top three categories of parent include the, the highly hesitant parent and then the cherry picking parent and the refuser. So it's the highly hesitant parent that we spend the most time with, what we call the fence sitters if you like. These are the parents, like all parents, who absolutely want to do the best by their child. They want to protect them but they are paralysed by fear, whatever that fear is about vaccines. Um, they may actually already be vaccinating um, and it's those parents that we have the most uh, capacity to essentially change their mind and get them over the line. The selectively vaccinating parents who, for example, might just be giving their child tetanus or you know, one or two vaccines, generally we find from our research in our clinic that those parents leave just cherry-picking vaccines. And unfortunately, in the small study that we did um, a couple of years ago in our clinic at the Children's, we managed to convince none of the refusers. Right. So I very much spend my time with the highly hesitant parents. I will spend up to an hour. I may offer them a review appointment in a few months' time. I'll work with them very hard on a catch-up plan, and I'll really spend that time with them. Similarly with those parents who are selecting out vaccines, but I don't tend to spend a lot of time with the refusers. 15, 20 minutes, I'm incredibly respectful. I thank them for their time. I leave the door open. I provide them with information and I invite them to come back. But those parents are generally very upfront at the start that they have no intention to vaccinate. So it's a short conversation, but it's always very respectful. So, so with the research you're doing, because I mean, it's been fascinating that you've focused on this because it's, it's a huge conundrum for loads of us, you know, yeah, in right. a non-specialist area. All. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you might be, and, and all doctors and nurses and paramedics, we all actually contribute to this. And the language that we use about vaccine and about vaccine refusers and about vaccine, well, we just go refusers, don't we? we? I think most of us that aren't in your area have a bit of a binary view of this. That's and, right. I, and I would accuse myself of this too. It's like, you're going to take vaccines. Or you don't. We've already that's established right. it's quite a bit more complicated than that. You're either a normal person or you're a hippie. We've already established that's rubbish as well. Okay. So as you're going through this, what have you? What has your research discovered in terms of the things that motivate the people 
that you can have an impact on? Is it just a little bit of information is a dangerous thing? And they sort of, they hear a little bit about vaccines being bad, they care, they're worried, they haven't been convinced by the information. Yeah. But otherwise, or what have you discovered when you're sort of picking it apart? Well, it's interesting. It's, it's very multi-layered, as you would expect. There are a number of cognitive biases that parents big in, bring into play. So, you know, these are heuristics that the brain uses to try and interpret what the parents sort of seeing and hearing or what they're understanding about vaccines are. So, you know, for example, um, omission bias, we very much find that there are some parents, for whatever reason, they've heard about a vaccine adverse event, they're paralysed by fear, so the default action is to do nothing. They omit all vaccines, and we see that all the time in clinic. Um, or availability bias, for example, they hear about an adverse event and it looms so much larger in their mind, they're unable to interpret the real risk associated with that, and so they may discontinue vaccinating. Or what we see a lot as well is confirmation bias where parents just seek out information online, on the internet, in anti-vax sites, where they just basically confirm whatever it is negatively they believe about vaccines to confirm their beliefs. Which is literally a society-wide problem at the moment. I mean, increasingly all of these debates in and around news, and we're looking about that in the, in the general spectrum, it's like an extreme version of it in and around That's right. So I, I think understanding that there are these heuristics that people use and that parents do think and frame their thinking in certain ways is useful on the one hand, but I think it's especially important with these parents to really carefully try and understand exactly what they are concerned about. So, for example, my approach to these parents is to really always thank them for coming in and because it's a highly charged emotional conversation for many of these people. It's not easy for them to drag their children into the hospital and find parking and come into clinic with their little kids. So I always thank them for coming and I try to relax them. I allow them to speak uninterrupted, at least for a few minutes. And what I'm really trying to do is to understand what are their top concerns, their top three concerns, if you like. And once I've really got a sense of that, then I always ask their permission if I can share what I know with them. And I try and specifically address what they're worried about. And I think, you know, when people feel heard, they start to relax, they disengage their cognitive biases and they are much more open to you replacing that myth or that untruth, if you like, with true facts. Um, because we do have to be very cognizant of the fact that just bombarding people with more and more facts can actually have the counter effect of making them more hesitant or more refusing. So it's a very complicated area and how we frame that pro-vaccine message, I try to get across to people more than anything, is as much how we communicate with parents, how we speak to them, what our communication approach is, as much as what we say. Look, which I think is a really good point, because one of the problems I have with all of this, because essentially I'm a vaccinator, I believe in vaccines, I, I mean, I've looked at the evidence, appreciate the problems, I get that there's complications, it's not nothing, but it's very small. And I vaccinated my children, right? Yeah. And so, the, the, so I'm, I'm pro-vaccine, but I do look at the sort of debates that go on in and around it, and I sort of, you know, when I'm, when I'm trying to deal with these sort of things and I'm, I'm people coming in, I just don't feel like I've got the level of expertise that you have. So even though I'm pro-vaccine and I might know something about it, yeah, I, I sure. don't have the tools that you have. So let's say I'm running a general practice clinic and somebody comes in and they're coming from the situation. 
where do I find out yeah. the stuff that I need in order to be able to answer those specific questions? Because that's great. I could probably pull out their five biggest concerns or their three biggest concerns, but then I don't have the information that's that you right. have available. Is there a place I can find that kind of stuff? Well, this really comes back to what, um, you know, many of us, we have a national research collaboration and we collaborate internationally as well. This is what we're trying to do is to actually build and develop interventions that have a communication training component. Mm. Because as you've just highlighted, it's all very well to elicit the top three concerns, but then how do you address it? What approach do you use? I need to be confident if I'm going to that person. Um, and we do know that uh, healthcare practitioners are a little bit allergic to this concept of communication training. They don't want to be told how to suck eggs. But what we're trying to do is provide people with a framework, something to just hang their hat on. Mm. And there is um, an intervention that's been developed, that's being led by Julie Leask at the University of New South Wales called Sky which is sharing knowledge about immunisation. Now this is basically a body of work. Um, it is hopefully one day going to be embedded in every general practice in Australia. And it's very much exactly what I'm describing to you. It's a framework for primary care providers in particular um, to tailor their communication approach depending on where the parent is. So if they're an accepting parent, we want informed consent. If they're a hesitant parent, we want to address their concerns. And if they're a refuser, we want them to be aware of the consequences of their decision. But it provides GPs with a communication training approach and it provides them with resources that are tailored to the top concerns that we know parents have. So, uh, I take your point, it's very difficult to know the how. The how is not necessarily intuitive, and as I pointed out before, we can actually get the how wrong and we can make people more hesitant and refusing without meaning to. But I think the cornerstone is lack of judgment. We do need to allow these parents to express that they have concerns without jumping on them and, and making them feel you know, that they are terrible parents and that they don't understand science because that's a big assumption. Oh, you're just asking, you're asking for trouble, aren't you? you know, I love your idea, it's almost like paying it forward. It's like, I will listen to what you have to say. That's and, right. And, it's just, and we, we always tell people in training sort of to shut up for a couple of minutes and listen to them and so on and so forth and they'll tell you what's wrong with them when you're trying to find a diagnosis. But actually in this sort of situation, a similar approach is let that person tell you what they're let concerned about. Let them speak, let them actually, you know, articulate what it is that they're concerned about. And Sky is S K S K A I dot. That's right. Um, well, it's actually hosted at the moment um, on the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. So okay. it's a mouthful, but it's N C I R S. It's hosted on the NCS website and it's S-K-A-I. So yeah. if you Google that, yeah, we have, I think now, um, five or seven fact sheets that we've developed for parents, but it's really meant for providers to be able to press, you know, um, print and hand this to the parent and it targets the top concerns. So we yeah. know what the top concerns are. We know the top concern that parents have is that children are given too many vaccines in the first two years of life followed closely by vaccine ingredients are toxic, yeah. and then we can go down the list. But it wouldn't surprise people listening to hear that up to 10% of parents still believe that MMR vaccine causes autism. So, you know, we've got a lot of work to do there, sadly, as well. But also just to highlight, up to 10% of parents are also concerned about the fear um, uh, of pain and vaccines, right. which is interesting. Um, and there are still parents that have those practical barriers that I referred to. So it's being really cognizant, I think, that it's not all just acceptance and hesitancy. It's actually helping some parents find the wherewithal to actually get their kids vaccinated. It's funny because I'm reminded of when I was a medical student how I was taught to deal with any patient that presented with dementia, like totally the other end of the scale and different sort of thing, yeah. which is what you're actually doing, you're picking it and you're looking for the things that you can actually affect, That's as right. opposed to going like, oh, it's all, 
and there's nothing that can be done and giving up because if you go in there and you find there's a UTI or you find out that the vision is dropped or you find out that, you know there's something in the house that tripped over and so on and this is a little bit like it I mean essentially <clears throat> you kind of you're circumnavigating and coming at it from any available opportunity to help this particular family That's right. get the information they need and ultimately it's still their decision you know? uh, one thing I should highlight though is a lot of clinicians uh, are very time poor and they may not only have more than sort of 10 to 15 minutes GPs, ED docs, nursing yeah. staff, whomever so there is a referral pathway. So for these parents who are more highly hesitant, they can refer them to us. Yeah. And when I say us, there is an immunised specialty immunisation clinic in every state right. in Australia. So are they all based in the major children's hospitals? Pretty much. Yeah, okay. And that's how they get to our clinic. Yeah. So GPs are our main referrer yeah. to our clinic. Um, and that's how these families... And so the families that walk through our door in clinic are not the ones with minor concerns. Yeah. We generally see the far more highly hesitant or entrenched, you know, refusers. Yeah. Um, so hopefully it's not as hard yakka as we say for um, for the GPs. Hopefully those parents do have a few more minor concerns and they're not dealing with the hardcore, um, you know, refuses as much as we are. And you're developing your own website as well, is that right? That's right. So one of the key um, findings from my research is that pregnancy is a key vaccine decision-making time point, not only for maternal vaccines, which at the moment is flu and pertussis, but for childhood vaccines. So this is the first time that new parents, mothers and fathers, start thinking about vaccines. And before the new baby arrives, it's actually the, the, the sort of um, pre premium time, if you like, or optimum time to actually start the, the mother thinking about childhood vaccines and providing information. So our new website's called Mum Bub Vax, really trying to um, capture that concept that it's about maternal and childhood vaccines. We're going to have resources um, that specifically are targeted to maternal flu and pertussis and birth hep B, but will link to the Sky website for the childhood vaccine information. But we also, so that'll be the parent portal and the provider portal will actually have an online training for midwives. Um, so we've really identified in the public antenatal setting that midwives are the provider that have an opportunity to communicate um, with pregnant women antenatally yeah. about vaccines. I must say, I feel for those, particularly the primates, because obviously that's the decision that you make, I presume, with your first child is likely to be repeated with the next children. They would That's really right. be targeting most. And they are more hesitant Absolutely. than women with children. We've shown that from our research. Interesting. But, the, um, the, but yeah, I feel for those young women uh, uh, sometimes just in terms of the amount of information they get bombarded with because there's loads of good reasons they're bombarded with it but I mean it must That's be like right. a torrent that comes their way. That's right, so. I mean they're being told everything from what they should eat, how much they should sleep and then they ask to think about vaccines. So, But actually women really are asking, from our research, they're asking for that information at that time. They are researching it, they are thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, we're again hopeful, similar to Sky, these two websites will be linked you know, we need to have a greater presence online. Um, we need to be accessing um, social media sites that mothers use, and we need to be providing trustworthy information, the facts on vaccines, to counter what is available at, online out there in terms of anti-vax information. Um, and I think that we can only do that by developing these really credible sources of information. Absolutely, and I think, I mean, all of us in the medical world, be us doctors, nurses, I mean, Obviously, maternal and child health nurses must be some, and, and midwives would be surely where the money is in terms of trying yeah. to make a difference. 
but we have to kind of at the same time stop making the whole thing worse. I and mean, we certainly have to drop our prejudices yeah. and stop being dismissive of people if they chose not to vaccinate. That's simply not going to help you. But if you were asking the other person to put up the defences and essentially not listening. Yeah, I, that's right. And I do think that a lot of the times when healthcare providers do put up the defences, it's because they actually find these conversations hard. Yeah. Because they are hard. Yeah. And so when you're faced with a parent who may have done more research than you lately and cut trots out, you know, sometimes we have families um, coming into clinic with briefcases of information it's pretty confronting for a doctor if you're not across you know every product information sheet on every vaccine yeah of course and we're not I mean let's face it so I think a lot of no no (laughs) I think a lot of the defensiveness on the behalf of the provider is feeling uncomfortable and not wanting to go there necessarily or not having the knowledge Um, and I think that's what we're trying to do with Sky and Mum Bubbacks is people don't have to have all the knowledge if we provide the facts in summarised fact sheets then that's sort of one part done, but then the rest is up to them in terms of the communication approach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, no one's going to tell, like you say, you're not trying to tell them just how to suck eggs, but... No. You know, this, this is kind of, this is a developing problem, and this is, and I don't see it getting a, a look, whole lot easier. You know, lot it's hard. I find these conversations hard, and I've been doing it over 10 years. Right, okay. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for explaining some of this to, uh, to, to me and to everybody out there. Uh, the Sky uh, resources and the Mumbo back stuff, there'll be links in the notes down below, guys. Have a look at that. Margie, thank you for talking to us. Oh, Thanks it was for an absolute us. pleasure. Thank you for, for chatting about it with me today. No problems. Okay, thank you very much.